Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm Romain Bostic in for David Weston. This week, Professor Stephanie Kelton, author of The Deficit Myth on Economic Experimentation. We are in an experimental economy. After this crisis, we really saw fiscal policy engage in a way that it didn't after the financial crisis. And special contributor Larry Summers on the continuation of trade tensions between the U.S. and China. I hope there's some kind of ongoing channel so as to manage potential crises. 5.4%. That's the statistic for the week. It was the headline consumer price index number for June, and it was the strongest jump in inflation in more than a decade. You exclude food and gas, it ends up being the biggest jump in three decades. Even if you back out the cost of shelter and the cost of used cars, the remaining goods and services in the index rose by the most in two decades. That CPI report for the month of June left no doubt that the U.S. is battling a problem of rising prices. What is in doubt? Whether those inflationary pressures will be long-lasting or temporary. Critics argue inflation is being fanned by the Fed, a Fed that insists on holding interest rates near zero and is yet to detail when it will fully scale back its multi-billion dollar monthly purchases of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Lawmakers grilled Fed Chair Jay Powell, who defended the current standstill on monetary policy. Inflation has increased notably and will likely remain elevated in coming months before moderating. And even as the economy seems to be roaring back, the Fed is still concerned that the pre-pandemic normal is not here yet. While reaching the standard of substantial further progress is still a ways off, participants expect that progress will continue. The spread of the COVID Delta variant is proof of the slow slog. 
It's now the dominant strain in Spain and in the UK, and it accounts for almost 60% of the cases right here in the U.S., widening the gulf between the unvaccinated and vaccinated communities. And while the government's central bank waits and sees, the big Wall Street banks, they show just how complicated things are in this economic recovery. Investment banking divisions, they're doing well, helping corporate clients adjust their finances. But revenue growth on most trading desks, that's been cooling as the market swings subside. And then while consumers are spending more and swiping their credit cards more frequently, they're also borrowing less money to do so. Joining us right now, our roundtable, Invesco Chief Global Market Strategist, Christina Hooper, and Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst, Allison Williams, joining us here uh, today to talk down about what happened really this week. And Christina, we really have to start with that CPI data, followed by the PPI data, which seemed to ratify, the, I guess, the fears of a lot of people that inflation is certainly real. The big question here is whether it's transitory. And I'm wondering whether you at all got a little bit rattled by some of the data that we saw this week. I actually didn't get very rattled at all, Romaine, and I'll tell you why. Um, we have gone through an extraordinary period in economic history. We essentially shut down the economy, uh, and then after a very significant period, we reopened it. So we have an incredible amount of pent-up demand. We have elevated household savings. Uh, we have lots of liquidity in general because we've had very significant fiscal and monetary stimulus. And so um, there is a lot of money chasing too few goods and services. Now, this print might be higher than what Fed officials expected, but they have said over and over again that they did expect inflation to spike. And I think that's key. This is not, uh, this should not come as a huge surprise. Mm. Yes, maybe it's a little higher than most expect, um, but there's nothing that I've seen that changes my mind that this is likely mm -hmm. mostly transitory inflation. So, that, so for investors, does that mean that they should remain pro-risk, pro-duration? Absolutely. Uh, I think what we need to do is take a step back and look at where we are in the economic cycle. And the U.S. really has just entered the expansion phase of the economic cycle. Um, what we know from history is that typically that's a period in which risk, ass risk assets outperform uh, and um, usually it's stocks that outperform uh, risky bonds. Mm -hmm. So it's an environment that I think uh, is is a positive for the stock market. And I expect that monetary policy remains very supportive, even yeah. if we see the start of normalization. So to me, this is a time to be risk on. So Allison Williams, a lot of people are really sort of trying to get a read here on where we stand in the economic cycle. This week, of course, we got earnings from all of the major U.S. banks here. And usually they kind of serve as a barometer, I guess, for economic sentiment. What did we learn from them this week? I think we learned that the economy is very healthy. And to some extent, we saw uh, most of the trends that we saw were in line with our expected. A couple were a little bit outsized. Mm -hmm. So net interest income continuing to drift lower. Credit, super strong. Um, great numbers from the bank. Not just the reserve releases that we read so much about, but mm -hmm. the underlying credit strong. And then um, and when, really- when you talk about the reserve releases, this is effectively the money they were setting aside for bad loans, right? Correct. So if we think about the mm -hmm. reserves, um, a, a year ago, banks had no idea. None of us had any idea how bad mm -hmm. things would get. 
So they were very conservative in terms of setting money aside. As things are getting better, they're uh, releasing those reserves, and that feeds into the income statement. And so there is a lot of volatility when you look at the overall EPS numbers. Mm -hmm. But I think from a core trends, also generally healthy, although, as I said, it's, it's a little bit of a mix. So those banks that rely more on net interest income, like a Bank of America or Wells Fargo, mm -hmm. some of the regional banks that are covered by Herman Chan, um, really have seen some softness. And a lot of that is really just due to the lack of borrowing. Our thanks to Christina Hooper of Invesco and Allison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence. Coming up, Netflix. It's adding a new wrinkle to the streaming wars with its plans to offer video games alongside Bridgerton. We talked to the former CNN president, John Klein, about the fight to stand out in the streaming world. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm Romain Bostic in for David Weston. The lockdowns of 2020 boosted Netflix, but next week, investors will get a chance to see whether the streaming giant's growth will hold in the post-pandemic world. We saw a dramatic pull in uh, for their subscriber growth. The bump was enormous. You can't sustain that, obviously. The question was, when would that slow down and how dramatically would it slow down? Well, now we have the answer. The key number to watch will be subscriber growth. A Bloomberg intelligence analysis of sensor tower data suggests global demand for Netflix is moderating, with the number of downloads in May and June rebounding a little from March and April when reopenings took a toll on adding new subscribers. Netflix has done better than I think many people thought in terms of adapting to a few things. One, the, the competition from Disney and and AT&T and others uh, uh, to uh, international expansion, which is something they invested heavily in. Disney Plus is Netflix's most formidable rival, but the streaming service still has a lot of catching up to do. Disney Plus had 103 million global subscribers. That compares to Netflix's 208 million. Disney Plus has a strong presence in Europe and in India, where it carries streaming service Hotstar. There's a new Marvel series, Loki, which debuted on Disney Plus last month and that may have given the streaming service a last-minute subscriber boost for the quarter. Our sign-up growth continues both domestically and internationally, and I have to say that we've now launched in a number of markets, I think 59 markets across the world, and we've not been disappointed yet. The streaming world is expected to get even bigger. A new PwC report predicts streaming is going to generate $94 billion in revenue by the end of 2025. That's up 60% from 2020. 
The pandemic brought new entrants into the streaming wars with the launch of NBC Universal's Peacock and Discovery Plus. I think there's only a handful of truly global, you know, greater than 100 million subscriber base type of services that can that can exist. All right, Netflix setting a high bar for its competitors, of course, with that TV and film content. Now the streaming giant said to be expanding into video games. Joining us right now, John Klein. You know him, of course, as a former president of CNN. He's now the co-founder of Hang Media. He knows a lot about keeping eyeballs glued to the screen. Uh, John, even before uh, this announcement here about the foray into video games, we had seen uh, Netflix experiment with live events and merchandising, a lot of things that are more than just the content of watching a television show or a movie here. Is this the future of streaming? This is what it's going to be? Oh, it's the present of streaming because streaming has become the central entertainment activity for everybody. Uh, COVID helped accelerate that, and that trend is not going away. Wait until they start getting into AR and VR. And, you know, there have been a lot of experiments with that already, but that's all going to be filtered through your streaming service as well. So there's a lot more to come. So what does that mean, though, for some of these smaller streaming services? I saw a statistic saying that, uh, you know, as of last month, there were almost 200 streaming services available here in the U.S., some of them obviously very niche. And then, of course, you have the the big players like Amazon, Apple, uh, Netflix, Disney Plus here. Uh, Is there room for a niche service that is just maybe doing one small thing? It's really tricky because one thing that we've all seen in the past year is that streaming is an incredibly expensive business to be in. Mm. Disney just announced that they're going to be spending $30 billion a year on content for Disney Plus. And they thought they were going to be spending about half that. And they've realized that they have to seriously up the ante because you think about your own streaming habits. You can binge an entire season of a show in one night if you're really into it. And these services are all having to scramble to catch up to make sure that they're shoveling enough content onto their services. That's why Mm. you've seen Netflix add so many foreign produced shows. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll bet you've watched at least one Netflix show that had subtitles in the past year, right? And that's because they just kind of ran out of U.S. created content, partly Mm. due to COVID and partly because consumer habits are just just out of control. And it's going to take a lot of resources to catch up to that, which means that smaller niche players are going to have to yeah, double down on the ultra niche and over deliver on their customer acquisition tactics mm-hmm. so that the cost of acquiring a subscriber drops mm-hmm. to make up for the, uh, the increasing cost of content. But it's going to be tough. Think yeah. of it this way. The the tech companies have so many more resources to deploy against content costs than traditional media companies do. Apple alone has a higher market cap than a combination of Disney, Netflix, Comcast, Verizon. You know, and it's so they can enter this business whole hog and and they've barely begun to fight. So it's going to be. It's going to be a very expensive proposition to be in the streaming business. Given the expense of that proposition, do you anticipate any sort of meaningful consolidation? I think there's going to have to be among the streaming also rands or the smaller players. I mean, it just isn't going to make sense to some of these companies to spend the kind of money that's necessary. For example, if you're NBC Universal and you're planning to spend $17 billion this year on Peacock, Mm-hmm. you might pause and say, well, first of all, where is that going to come from? We're going to have to 
cannibalize some of our other core businesses, and they're going to have to be willing to do that. And will they be? You know, will they pull money away from the TV networks, from yeah. the local TV stations that they've got well, in order to fund this? Or might they say, you yeah. know what, maybe we ought to pair up well, with somebody yeah. like a CBS or or Warner. Should we should Comcast yeah. jump in to the bidding for Warner Media and, well, and, and grab that away? Well, well, that raises an interesting question here about the future of live television, John. Obviously, you uh, ran CNN for uh, several years uh, here in the U.S. here. And I'm curious, is there still a place for live news, live sports in a streaming world where we want to see everything on demand? Well, news is one of the few areas that that's actually growing during the streaming boom. And I think it'll continue to because it's just a very tough proposition to watch news later, you know, on demand. You do want to see it as it's unfolding. Sports is going to evolve because it, it used to be and has been up until now a mainstay of traditional television delivery. But Amazon just paid a billion dollars for the rights to Thursday night football wow. starting in 2023. Yeah. That's a first yeah. for a streaming service to pay that kind of money. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that that's going to that that's that is a bellwether for a big change. And I think you're going to begin to see sports go the pay route as well. And our thanks to TAP Media Chairman and former CNN President John Klein. Coming up here, Fed Chair Powell says central banks can still help get the economy back on track. But modern monetary theory experts like Stephanie Kelton say holding down rates may not be the best way to manage inflation. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Romain Bostic in for David Weston. The Fed jumped into action at the height of the pandemic and it helped fill in the gap while lawmakers came up with fiscal stimulus plans. But Fed Chair Jay Powell says it's still too soon to think about pulling back that aid. Now, inflation is jumping and the Fed doesn't seem to be in any rush to raise rates. Modern monetary theory experts say that is not just the Fed's responsibility. Fiscal policy should also play a role in controlling inflation. Stephanie Kelton, a professor of economics at Stony Brook University, is a leading expert on MMT. She joins us right now. Stephanie, as we speak today, all of the debate out there right now is about inflation. Is it going to be long lasting or is it going to be transitory? When you look at the latest data that we got, what type of inflationary pressures are you actually seeing yourself? And do you see those as being permanent? When I look at the data, what I think mostly this looks like are the growing pains of an economy that's emerging from a pandemic and reopening. And we see a lot of idiosyncratic uh, pressures and supply chain issues and um, backlogs and that sort of stuff. So I think by and large, what it looks like to me is the kind of thing that, frankly, we anticipated, right, coming out of the pandemic. And so it's pretty hard for me to see the kinds of things that I think you would need to be in place in order to get the sort of entrenched inflation that begins to feed on itself. So I, I guess I situate myself pretty squarely in the, uh, in the transitory camp. Yeah, and there's certainly uh, an element of the inflationary pressures we have that were certainly predictable, uh, given uh, just how volatile the economic crisis was, the COVID crisis, and how volatile things have been coming out of it here. But as we sort of get to the other side uh, of this economic cycle, there's a lot of debate right now about 
additional fiscal spending, additional fiscal stimulus, whatever you want to call it? Is it just throwing another log on the fire of an economy that's already hot? Or is this something that maybe has a place here in our policy and in the way we spend government money? Well, I think it's the latter. I think that most of what we're hearing about right now, right, we're hearing about maybe a three and a half trillion dollar um, human infrastructure bill coming uh, maybe alongside the more traditional so-called hard infrastructure. And I don't think the administration is thinking of this as, as stimulus. I'm certainly not thinking of this as stimulus. I'm thinking of this more the way I think they are, which is, you know, doing things that will strengthen some of the um, fragility that's been baked into our system by, you know, longstanding uh, policy decisions, We're trying to redress uh, some things, fix some of the deficits in the real economy and lay a foundation for a really sustainable and inclusive recovery. So I think they're looking at this as an opportunity to strengthen the social safety net, make investments in things like education and healthcare, just places where we have underinvested for decades. And we've heard that message, of course, from the Biden administration and some of his allies in Congress. We've also heard this idea here that sort of inequalities need to be addressed, particularly inequalities that were sort of laid bare based on the policies coming out of the last big financial crisis in 2008, 2009, 2010 here. What type of steps do you think that the Biden administration and hopefully Congress can sort of take so that we don't repeat some of those same mistakes? Well, I think that what we're hearing articulated from the administration, right, is that the goal is to make investments at the bottom that grow from the middle out. So instead of, you know, this sort of top down, trickle down sort of, uh, you know, policy prescription that we've tried again and again uh, and, and watched fail, that this time is different, that this time we want to see the government making investments in things like early childhood education and the caring economy, mm-hmm. um, you know, broadening the scope for infrastructure investment, college education, elder care, and, and the rest of it. So I think, you know, we're looking at the potential for millions and millions of good paying jobs, many of them for people, in fact, most of them for people with yeah. um, little, if any, college education. So this really is an opportunity to, you know, provide Uh, a good, solid foundation for a recovery that aims squarely at those at the bottom in the middle of of the economic income distribution. So, Professor, you mentioned the sort of top-down nature of economic policy. That has been basically the dogma now for several decades. A lot of people have bought into it uh, on both sides of the political spectrum. There's an argument to be made that there has been a spate of prosperity in this country that I guess can be attributed to that top-down policy. Is there a sense here that the boom bust cycles we've been through over those last few decades since that top down policy became the sort of dogma that that is a contributor to it? Or is there something else here that maybe we should be looking at? Well, I, th- I think there's something else. I think, you know, the, the reality is that we've got a, a lot of studies now and some pretty big ones that have been done looking at the longer term effects of the supply side policies. And they really have been a failure. These have not been successful policies and they've been tried decades upon decades. And what we've ended up with is widening gaps between those at the very top and everybody else. Income and wealth inequalities have widened. We haven't gotten the kinds of 
of wage growth and inclusive and sustainable growth for the middle class. We've seen middle class jobs uh, and workers fall behind for decades. So I think it is time to shift gears. Thanks to Stephanie Flanders of Stony Brook University and the author of The Deficit Myth. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm Romain Bostic in for David Weston. And now here to discuss some of the economic developments of the week, we're joined by our special contributor, economist Larry Summers. Uh, Larry, I want to start with some developments that occurred towards the end of the week. On Friday, we got an advisory out of the Biden administration, the Treasury, the State Department, the Homeland Security Department and the Commerce Department all putting out an advisory warning U.S. companies about the risk of doing business in Hong Kong, saying the business environment over there has deteriorated given China's recent push to, I guess, control uh, what goes on uh, in that territory there. The relationship between the U.S. and China, the economic dialogue between the U.S. and China, seems to be getting worse, not better. I think that's right. I think there are plenty of issues on both sides. You look at many of the things that China has done. It's not just vis-a-vis the United States. The investment agreement that China and the EU had reached are on the rails. China's encountering uh, friction uh, all over the world. I am concerned about the canceling of dialogue. Uh, It seems to me that in many ways, the more fundamental your disagreements, the more important it is that there be some form of uh, communication. So I don't think we're in any position to have a partnership with uh, China. We're competing with them in very full spectrum ways. But the strategy of not having uh, dialogue and not being interested in communication, it seems to me, is one that... Uh, concerns me, and whether it's called a strategic economic dialogue, whatever it is uh, called, uh, I hope there's some kind of ongoing channel so as to manage potential crises and so that we're in a position to address difficult uh, issues uh, when and if uh, they arise. I think we need to recognize that we're in a kind of unprecedented situation when 
we were um, in a significantly adversarial relationship with the Soviet Union, there was vastly less interdependence yeah. uh, than there is uh, today. And so with this degree of disagreement, this degree of interdependence uh, is a new kind of relationship and we're all feeling our way. And I'm not counseling us to not aggressively pursue our interests. I think we do need a kind of uh, firmness and directness that yes. we always haven't uh, had. But I, I do wish we were providing for some continuing conversation. That interdependence is certainly a, a critical difference here uh, between how the U.S. Uh, is dealing with China and how uh, the situation it had with the Soviets. I am curious, though, there has been a push here to m try to make some U.S. industries a little bit more economically independent from the Chinese supply chain here. And obviously we know that is a, a tough thing to do here, uh, given just how supply chains are set up here. But do you think that there is a case to be made that the U.S. can be a more of a manufacturer of its own goods, more of an assembler of its own goods, and less reliant on China and other foreign nations? Romain, I, I think one needs to distinguish between security and uh, independence. Yes, I think we need to be conscious uh, and careful about being vulnerable. Uh, I think it was a very concerning situation that the U.S. couldn't get access to masks early uh, in uh, the uh, pandemic. And so, yes, I do think we need to pay attention to, as some people have put it, just in time as well as uh, just in case, as much as we pay attention to uh, just in time. But does that mean the production needs to be located in the United States rather than in countries we're allied with, like those in Canada and Europe? I think that's a mistake. Does that mean that those strategies should be motivated not by secure supplies, but instead by aspirations to return jobs to the United States? I'm not sure that when they're framed that way, they are particularly sound. I think the Trump administration made a serious error to which the Biden administration has, I think, not uh, corrected uh, fully of forgetting that when you raise the price of inputs, you reduce the competitiveness of U.S. producers. And so when imported goods are an import to our manufacturing and we restrict those imports, we make our manufacturing less uh, competitive. Mm -hmm. And so all of that is, I think, uh, issues that we need to recognize. So yes, I would take on board the idea of resilience and containing supply chains, mm -hmm. but no, I surely would not uh, frame this in terms of maximizing manufacturing jobs. That's a kind of old-fashioned yeah. Latin American notion that didn't work very well in Latin America and I think ultimately over the long term won't work so well here.
All right, so the other big development this week, of course, was the latest inflation data, the CPI numbers and the PPI numbers, both running hot, both adding to the evidence here that inflation is certainly real. Uh, Jay Powell, the Fed chair, was on Capitol Hill for his semi-annual testimony. He acknowledges his exact quote was, inflation is not moderately above 2%. It's well above 2%. But then he did ask and ask his own question here, basically, is where are we six months from now? Basically, raising this question about whether the pressures that we're seeing out there are transitory, whether they will dissipate once some of the supply chain bottlenecks are finally worked out here. What's your general view here right now on where we stand with these inflation pressures? I think most of the observers are framing the question the wrong way, Romain. They're framing it as, is inflation transitory? Look, the, at an annualized rate, the inflation rate was 11% this month. Yes, that is transitory. There is no question at all that that is transitory. There is no question that the figures were pushed up by transitory factors in used cars and other things. But that's not the important question. The important question is whether of the 11%, 9% was transitory, 8% was mm. transitory, or 6 or 7% were transitory. If 6 or 7% was transitory, then we've got inflation running at 4 or 5%, and we've got a real problem uh, in uh, the country. So one's not addressing the issue usefully simply by remarking that there's a lot of transitory inflation. I look at what's happening in the labor market where we've got job shortages to, uh, in terms of the ability to fill jobs to an unprecedented degree, where workers are quitting at a very large uh, rate. And I see real cause for concern that wage inflation is starting to uh, accelerate. I look at what's happening in the housing market where Everybody I know who's trying to rent a house, every mm -hmm. statistic I see, whether it's from San Francisco or from uh, Cincinnati, whether it's from uh, New York or whether it's from rural Iowa, is saying that the housing market is on fire, both for renters and owners. I see none of that in the statistics. And it looks to me, the statistics of the official price indices, and it looks to me like either those statistics are wrong or more likely that inflation is going to uh, come. And so I think that inflation is with us. Thanks to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Now, finally, one more thought. Next week marks the 52nd anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission to the moon, a human setting foot on soil other than the Earth's. It was a dramatic culmination of years-long space race between the Soviets and the U.S. And while rooted in national security and national pride, it ended up being a springboard for technological advancement like we had never seen before. A third industrial revolution that hastened the development of automation and computing, and it laid the groundwork for many of the things we take for granted today. Mobile phones, food preservatives, air purifiers, cordless tools, wireless headsets, memory foam mattresses, so many little things owed directly to one big thing, the push to explore space. That push then was led by the government. But now a new era of space exploration is afoot and it's being led by private industry and private individuals, Bezos, Branson, Musk, billionaire entrepreneurs whose ambitions, dare I say, may be a little bit less noble and much more profit oriented to be sure than what spawned the 1960s space race. But once you dig beneath the billionaire bravado, 
Something important is actually taking place here. Real science, real research, real human progress. It's likely no coincidence that Bezos chose to stage the first crewed mission of his Blue Origin spacecraft for July 20th, the anniversary of Neil Armstrong's milestone. Bezos has already compared the spectacle of space tourism to the airplane barnstormers of 100 years ago whose flying acrobatics seemed trivial at the time, but they helped fuel public fascination and an acceptance of a new and, of course, now common mode of transportation, the airplane. Elon Musk and SpaceX, they've shown you can shave millions of dollars off the cost of launches with reusable rocket boosters, an idea that was nothing more than science fiction just a few decades ago. The experimentation by these individuals along with the continued involvement of the government, NASA in the U.S., and space agencies in China, Europe, India, Russia, the UAE, they're actively leading to scientific advancement in jet propulsion, mining, farming, water extraction, laser communication, and radiation shielding, all providing valuable insight into how humankind could adapt to much harsher environments. Now, it's unclear what the end game is for this renewed push to explore the ultimate frontier, But if the 1960s space race was any guide, then the sky is not the limit. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm Romaine Bostic. This is Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.